Welcome to The Healing Ground Movement, a podcast dedicated to revolutionizing how we think about our bodies and our health. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, DC, and I have lived my life in pursuit of holistic healing and care that goes beyond symptom management. If you've been listening and like what you're hearing, head over to your favorite platform and leave us a review so we can reach more people with our important message. Enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Healing Ground Movement Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, and with us today, I have Suki Baxter, who is an embodiment coach. Now, before we dive into learning a little bit more about Suki, I do want to invite our listeners to reach out to us. We have been recording and talking and sharing with you for about a year and a half now, and we want to learn more about you. We want to know who you are and what you want to know about on this podcast. We have covered a number of topics from health and the body, um, soft tissue, movement, nutrition, and we're going to dive a little bit more more into trauma and stress today, but what do you want to hear about? What are the topics we haven't covered yet that you're just dying to learn more about? And what guests would you like to have on the show? We actually have a survey available for you. You can follow either follow it in the show notes of this episode or visit thehealinggroundmovement.com to access a link to our survey. And a random winner will be drawn on July 4th to receive a gift bag of some of our favorite self-care and healing products. So go ahead, find that survey, let us know what you're thinking, and I'm so excited to let you know who the winner is on July 4th. So now back to the show. Suki Baxter is an embodiment coach with over 15 years of experience working with clients to help them release pain and trauma from their bodies and their hearts. Her journey to understand who we are as humans, why we hold on to stress and trauma, and most importantly, how we change started with her own experience healing pain and anxiety. Today, Suki teaches coaches and healers how to release blocked emotions in the body so they're able to create consistently magical client results and potential breakthroughs on demand. Suki, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm always curious because, you know, so much of us in the, in kind of the healing arts, it does start with our own story of trauma and our own journey of healing. You mind sharing a little bit more of yours and what brought you to embodiment coaching? Absolutely. So I initially started as a healer in a bodywork practice when I was in college, actually, I experienced a session of integrative bodywork and it had a really profound transformative experience on me. At the time, I was rowing on the crew team, and so I was a a collegiate athlete, and that was very challenging for me. I was not particularly (laughs) athletic, so I was really pushing myself, and I had a lot of pain, and prior to that, I'd been riding horses competitively. So mostly, I went into this integrative bodywork session for pain relief. I had um, most likely some kind of tendonitis. I don't know that I ever had it diagnosed and was very uncomfortable, but it just had this profound impact on how I felt. I was a high anxiety person. I worried constantly, and this was just chronic throughout my life. It's just, it was part of who I was, part of my personality. So I had this amazing experience and it felt like magic. And I took a hard left. Um, I had thought that I would go into some kind of a business career, uh, you know, in an office somewhere. I don't don't even know (laughs) what I thought I was going to wind up doing specifically, but it was not being a bodywork practitioner. 
And so I um, kind of took a hard left and was like, I have to learn this magic. And I ended up studying that integrative body work and starting a practice and um, diving headlong into the world of healing and really, uh, you know, learning about how our bodies hold on to stress and trauma and, and mm-hmm. what pain really is. And it was, it's been quite an interesting journey. I love it. And I just, I love this use of magic. I mean, it's a little tongue in cheek and we all kind of say it sort of within these um, hands-on embodiment professions because the changes you get are so incredible, especially when, you know, the patients come in having been told, you know, this is it, it will be chronic. This is your quality of life, or I don't have an answer for you, or yes, we can heal it, but it's going to take a long time. So anything that is a bit different from that story does strike us as miraculous. Um, and And it's a nice way to think about it. But when it comes down to how stress and trauma and anxiety and these things are stored in the body, it really is, um, you know, biological. It really is just part of how we exist in the world. Can we start to unpack some of those misconceptions about um, the biology of stress and how trauma is stored in the body and maybe different ways that we could start looking at it? Absolutely. I think those are really great things to talk about uh, because, Ultimately, what led me into becoming an embodiment coach and kind of to, um, you know, I, I no longer do body work with clients and see people in a clinical practice, uh, was this frustration with observing the way the medical industry <laughs> was talking about these concepts to people who were suffering from pain and stress and anxiety. Um, and and there, there's just so much wrong with how we look at health. Um, and one of the biggest things is this idea that it's all in your head or that, you know, you can tell yourself you're okay. Mm-hmm. So I cannot count the number of people I saw who came in who had some sort of pain that a doctor couldn't diagnose by pointing to something on an image. They couldn't mm-hmm. find anything in an x-ray. And honestly, you know, there's a lot of uh, research around <laughs> whether or not that <laughs> that means anything anyway, but you know a doctor couldn't find a thing to point to, or um, a person had been in a car accident a year and a half ago, and the doctor would say, "Well, you should be better by now, so mm-hmm. you must be making this up. It's all in your head. Uh, you're hallucinating. You're cracking up." You know, people thought people were ashamed. You know, I, mm-hmm. they didn't necessarily come in and say, "I'm really ashamed of this," but like they, you know, when I told them, "Look, you're not." crazy and you're not making this up. This is a real experience. The relief that they had on their face was Mm -hmm. profound. I love Um, that language of not love, like ironically I say, but that like, you should be better than by now. So since my protocol says you're done, you're done. Why, Why are you here? And that is so discordant from this idea of being patient centered for, you know, believing someone that they're coming to you because they have something that needed to be treated rather than this very outdated idea of hysteria that, you know, people just want attention. They just want someone to listen to them whine and cry. But that is so far from the truth for anyone that has dealt with chronic pain, asking for help from a very genuine place. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's so true. I've, you know, I've heard stories of people who go to the ER with pain and, and they're mm-hmm. like, no, I, I legitimately have pain and doctors are treating them like they're drug addicts. I'm like, no, I don't want drugs. I just, mm-hmm. I just want to not hurt. I just want an answer. Yeah. And I think it's, it might be worth circling back around. Cause you did make, um, 
just an allusion to the x-rays and the imaging that we have available. And, and this isn't to knock x-rays and MRIs and CTs and all of these um, forms of imaging because we certainly need them. If, if a bone is frankly broken, if there is a tumor, if one of your internal organs has been punctured, you know, these, this is life-saving stuff, this imaging. But if you have a little bit more of this run-of-the-mill chronic pain, aches that you can't quite put your finger on, you know, most of the time these pains exist within soft tissue and nervous and uh, the nervous system. And that's not going to show up as any kind of visible damage. Even this tendonitis that you may or may not have ever quite gotten a diagnosis for isn't going to show up as an x-ray unless the inflammation is so bad, we might see a little hazy kind of thing. You know, it's just not what that imaging is made for. So the idea of using it as a diagnostic tool for these kinds of aches and pains is, is a little ludicrous, especially then when it's being used to say, no, you're just making it up. There's nothing there. Yeah. And also they have found a lot of, you know, diagnosable issues in people who don't have pain, people who are asymptomatic. Um, so, it, you know, we used to only put people with pain in imaging. Mm -hmm. And look at their spines and we'd be like, wow, that looks really weird. Obviously you would hurt. But then we started putting people who, I mean, not me, because I don't, I don't do that, but, but <laughs> researchers started putting people in the imaging who uh, mm -hmm. they, they didn't report pain, reported mild pain, and they would have just the same kind of prevalence of structural abnormalities and dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And um, there's actually a spinal surgeon in Seattle who found that he doesn't, he asks his spinal surgery patients to go through a lifestyle modification protocol prior to doing the surgery. And he finds that a high number of them end up canceling their surgery. And they have x-rays that show mm -hmm. spinal abnormalities and dysfunctions. Mm -hmm. So, But they're able to be pain-free. So then an x-ray, like you said, I do believe imaging can be helpful. I've told clients to, you know, to go and talk to a doctor about mm -hmm. getting imaging because um, it can just give us another piece of the puzzle. But it's not the whole story. It's just mm -hmm. one piece of data, one thing that can inform us. Uh, it's not the ultimate book on how you should be feeling. <laughs> right. It, it's only... It only matters if it matters, these things that exist in our body. I mean, any number of us, oh, I wish I did know the statistic off the top of my head, um, but it's not insignificant, the number of us that may have a um, disc derangement, that's the the connective tissue that lives between our vertebrae, between the bones and our spine, or, um, you know, a protrusion or arthritis, uh, because I did go to a chiropractic college and part of our training is um, to learn how to do imaging. I've had a lot of imaging done of various parts of my body uh, with or without pain. And I got to tell you, my cervical spine, my neck looks like a train wreck, the amount of arthritis I have in my neck. I have no neck pain. This is not a problem. It just is what exists there. So it only matters if it matters. And if you're doing the other things you need to take care of yourself, that's wonderful. And if you're not, then yeah, you might run into that arthritis or that disc issue actually becoming an issue for you. But like you were saying, Suki, those lifestyle changes can make all the difference. Yeah, they really can. And, you know, I just have story after story of people who have had similar experiences. You know, my, my own dad was in a car accident several years back, a bad one, but he was rear-ended by a semi-truck on a freeway, um, which 
then of course what happens when you're rear-ended by a commercial driver is you end up going through a horrendous insurance experience where you have to go to these independent medical examiners. And they found that he had degenerative disc disease, which I don't know how you feel about that. I I don't love the name. No. no. (laughs) Um, uh, But they found that in his neck and they started to, you know, they, they tried to tell him that he Um, therefore did not have pain resulting from this accident because that was degenerative and had been there prior to the accident and therefore his pain was not caused by the accident. So he had to go through this whole legal battle around that. My my father may have had some changes in his neck, but he had no pain Mm -hmm. prior to the accident. He was active, he was running, you know, he was skiing on a regular basis. He had no complaints prior to that accident and, and the accident did spark pain. He's actually doing great now and it's very active and healthy and, and did not, they tried to recommend surgery as well. And he ended up not being, not having to do that, which is fantastic. Oh, good. Good. So, yeah. So if we can say that it's not, you know, for most of us and, you know, the, the recovery rate of doing lifestyle changes and keeping, um, keeping us out of surgery is, is really quite high. It's pretty remarkable. I think uh, last I looked back surgery for treatment of back pain saying specifically is about a 50, 50. It's either going to be exactly everything you always wanted it to be or flip the coin and change nothing or perhaps make things worse. But in putting lifestyle and movement changes into, um, into your pain and doing that rehab, we actually see a much higher success rate of reducing chronic pain. And this is back pain specific. So what are the kinds of things that we can do to handle this pain and this trauma in our body, um, regardless of what the imaging says? Yeah, so this gets very, <laughs> this gets into an interesting question because we are very conditioned to want to know the thing to do. That like, what is the stretch? what is the exercise? What, you know, should I be doing yoga? Should I do Pilates? Should I be running? Running is bad. Should I sleep on my stomach? Should I sleep on, you know, like what, what, how should I hold my body and Mm -hmm. how should I move my body? Tell me how to do those things. In my work, what is primary is the experience of your physical body, because a lot of times, pretty much universally, really, we've been conditioned to not experience our physical selves, which sets up, you know, completely apart from anything you may have experienced, accidents and traumas and any Mm -hmm. kind of stressful circumstances in your life, just not being connected to your physical self sets up a stress state because you're not getting sensory data from your body. So um, I talk a lot about you know, amputees as, a, as an interesting example of this. There's a very well-known phenomenon of phantom limb pain. So when a person has a limb amputated, it's not uncommon for them to experience you know, pain mm-hmm. in the limb that is no longer there. So what is that, right? Because there's nothing there to send pain signals. So what that is, or as, as far as we know now, <laughs> with yeah. our, current, our current level of understanding <laughs> is that our brain is saying, there was a limb there and now I can't locate it. I'm not getting sensory data. That's an emergency. That's a big problem. So I'm going to push, push the SOS button and that starts the alarm and the alarm is pain. That's your fire alarm. And one of the therapies used for amputees, I'm sure you know, is mirror box therapy. So they'll set up a mirror where a person can reflect the existing limb. So for example, if your left arm has been amputated, you can set up a mirror to reflect your right arm so that visually you can see the, you know, the arm, it sort of mm-hmm. creates this 
illusion of having the arm, which, you know, vision is a sensory experience. So that goes into your brain and your brain goes, oh, there it is. I see that limb now. Uh, okay. I don't need the pain because I can, I can locate the limb. Mm-hmm. So that's an extreme example. But when we're like metaphorically amputated from our bodies where we don't, we're not connected to our sensory experience, that's a threat state. And so completely apart from whether you're doing yoga or stretching or running or horseback riding or whatever activity you're doing, this stress state is going to create you know, pain and anxiety in mm-hmm. your body. So the first thing that I want to teach people is how to feel, <laughs> how to feel their bodies again. Um, and in the cases of trauma, which, you know, I, I having studied trauma <laughs> in the body, <laughs> we all have it <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to different degrees. We all have some of it. Um, so in cases of trauma, a lot of times what's coming through our body is very loud and it's very uncomfortable when we start to feel it. Mm-hmm. So I generally will have people start with orienting to their environment, just getting familiar with locating themselves in space. A lot of us don't ever take the time to slow down and like look around and realize Mm -hmm. where we actually are. So I take them through a process of like, okay, let's learn to look at stuff that's around us. And Mm -hmm. then we kind of come to like, oh, here I am and to locate my own self. And then we'll start to dive into what's the internal experience of my body. Mm -hmm. And that is foundational to then anything that you want to do. And in my, you know, in my principles, in my Mm -hmm. philosophy, like you can do any activity, but if you don't get the sensory experience of it, you're not really getting the benefit of Mm -hmm. the stretch or the movement. I love this. And and that awareness piece, I just, I really want to harp on that for a little bit because I have the same conversations with my patients here that it is, we want to know the yes, no checklist, you know, and especially when we have um, severe pain, I don't know why I keep coming back to back pain for this, but back pain, for example, has, um, you know, a lot of fear associated post-recovery. And so there is a fear of movement and there is a fear of engaging. And this can happen with, you know, recovery from broken arms and other limbs that we just don't want that recurrence of injury. So we seek to not use it and not move it. And when we don't move a limb or a part of our body, our brain will lose awareness of it. And this is the, um, you know, the lighter version of phantom limb we can still smudge, it's called smudging when we change that area in our brain that controls the sensory and motor portion of this part of our body. But in a sense, we are disassociating from it and creating a disconnect. And that in itself will increase the pain because as you explained, Suki, it is the SOS signal of I misplaced my arm, physically or not. And so it doesn't matter what the activity is. There is no do or don't list. There is the do activity with awareness and self-control and embodiment or don't do activity without. And it really becomes as simple and as complicated as that. How are we aware of our body and will that recreate um, a fear and an SOS and a pain or will it create an embodied healing experience for us? Yes. And there are so few places in our lives where we are given that level of agency, you know, in a general sense, but especially in a physical sense, you know, from a very young age, excuse me, we are uh, conditioned to negate and subjugate our bodies. 
you know, it starts in school, right? With sitting still, don't mm-hmm. fidget. Um, you know, you have to start controlling your body. I mean, it's, it's a good thing to be able to like, you know, wait to go to the bathroom, yeah. but also we, you know, we're in these structures and these institutions where you have to ask someone else's permission to go to the bathroom. You have to wait to eat until a certain time. You're only allowed to eat at this schedule on the day or during the day. Um, Some parents will put their babies on a schedule. It's like, you know, I feed you at this time and this time and this time. Mm -hmm. There are lots of ways in which our own internal urges for things are not acknowledged. And that sets up another anxiety loop because we don't have any internal agency. We don't have any um, intrinsic desire or connection to intrinsic desire, which mm-hmm. comes from our felt sense, our, you know, our bodies tell us what we want, but if we can't connect to it, we're sort of adrift. And then we need someone like we're desperate for someone to tell us, do this thing. This is the right thing to do. Uh, one of the things that I have, you know, n- been known to ask my clients a lot is, does this feel productive or not productive? You know, mm. does this stretch feel good or bad? And there, and the question that I get back all the time is how should it feel? You know, I'll say, you know, do try this, try this movement. How is that for you? Well, how should it feel? I I don't know. I'm I'm not the one in your body. Like, you know, does it feel good or bad? Like, let's just start with good. (laughs) I like it or bad. I don't like it. And like, Mm -hmm. just, just starting with that can start to get someone connected to what they're feeling again. Mm-hmm. Well, and we think about all the ways that we have to continue to to separate ourselves from that feeling and that needed sense. Um, you know, it's we can keep ourselves on the schedule, or we can blow that schedule so far out of the water that we could spend you know, forty eight hours binging on television and eating nonstop. Either way, whether it's a rigid schedule of only at this time or continuously, whether or not I feel it we're not having an internal conversation about our body's needs and that felt sense of what is good, what is bad, what feels good, what feels bad. Um, Not in a right or wrong sense, but just in a, do I need it? So tell me a little bit more about that, that lack of felt sense creating this anxiety loop within the mind-body connection. Yeah. So one thing that I find that is extremely problematic in um, mental health practices is this idea of emotions as disembodied things, right? So a lot of times you'll you'll hear um, that we should name our emotions, you know, so what are you feeling right now? I'm feeling happy, I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling grief, I'm feeling anxiety. But those emotions are the synthesis of what we're feeling in our bodies, right? How do you know what you're, what you're feeling? It's that deeper level. You're taking into account, um, uh, you know, a pit in your stomach or a lightness in your heart or, you know, an expansive feeling or a contractive feeling. Mm-hmm. That's what's telling you, ah, this, this thing, this state that I'm in, that is an anxious state. I am feeling anxiety. So when we're not connected to our bodies, we, we don't actually know how, how we're feeling. We're Mm -hmm. intellectualizing our experience of life and we can't be self-led. So we, you know, we, we can't then uh, decide what it is that we need in that moment. So like you said, you can go too far in in one extreme or the other, you can get either hyper rigid, 
right? And we've all known people who are like, let's say maybe super type A, <laughs> um, who, who have to be on a schedule and they like never miss a day of working out and, you know, their diet is super on point and they, there's just no resilience or flexibility or elasticity in there. Or you can have people who kind of go to the other side where there's no structure at all. Um, and they just feel lost and adrift and like they have no control over it. And somewhere in the middle is where we have agency where we can say like, I, I'm feeling, um, you know, I'm feeling in a certain way. And I know that when I feel in this way, what moves me in a direction towards what I want to experience is X and -hmm. really only only the person who's living in that body really truly knows that people outside can make suggestions and recommendations based on our experience, based on research, um, based on, on our observations. But the reality is only the person who's living in that body really truly knows whether eating a cupcake or a salad is the right thing in the moment based on what kind of a result they want to have. And based on observing the patterns of how those activities make them feel. And that takes away again the the right or wrong and simply what is. Uh, yes. I, I really, really love a couple of language choices that you made with resilience and elasticity. Because I think, you know, we can get, particularly in American culture, which is so much about bootstraps and push through and, you know, four hours of sleep a night and I can handle anything, which is really just burnout culture. And and that's getting a lot more attention these days as we, especially as we all had to slow down for 2020. But when we think about that person who is working out every single day and always has this really, um, rigid food program, it might be tempting to think of their resilience as very high because they are so well-equipped and strong and they, they check all those quote-unquote right boxes. But when you use words like resilience and elasticity, that asks, is there any malleability? Is there any room for them to adapt? And if you take away that structure will this person be resourced to continue onward regardless? And we can apply that same questions of the resilience and elasticity with this more sloth personality, which has already been painted in such a negative light. And it's easy to think about how that's something that none of us do, or that's when we let ourselves go. But again, we don't see resiliency and elasticity in that kind of adaptation either. They're not going to turn on a coin any faster than our hyper-rigid person. It is that mid-ground in the middle of, can I adapt? Can I eat the salad and eat the cupcake and know that I am serving different parts of myself when I make those choices because I'm listening to this um, inner felt sense of what my body is telling me I need? Yes. I talk, excuse me. Excuse me. My goodness. Um, I talk a lot about intrinsic desire as well, uh, where we live in a culture where we talk a lot about the carrot and the stick, where we're motivated either to get a reward or we're motivated to move away from a, um, a negative punishment. And, there's something that middle ground is that intrinsic desire. I am doing a thing simply for the pleasure of doing the thing. So with a salad, I think food is such a great example because food has been so stigmatized and, you know, it's one of those things where everyone tells us like what we should be eating. And there's, there's so many unhealthy words around food. Like I'll be good and I'll eat this, you know, or I'm going to be bad and eat the cupcake. You know, like we, we have a lot of judgments about ourselves around food. Um, 
but we can talk about a salad and eating a salad can be the same activity. And this is true for everything, right? We can say yoga is this way, running is this way, like every activity is this way. So if I'm going to eat a salad, I can be either moving away from punishment, right? I'm eating this salad because I had a cupcake yesterday and I feel guilty and I shouldn't have done it and I'm a bad person. And so I'm like motivating myself through negativity to eat this salad. There's no joy or pleasure in that. I can also do it to move towards a reward. Like I want flat abs or I want to lose 10 pounds or whatever, right? That can be the thing. And also there can be no joy and pleasure in the activity of the eating of the salad. Mm -hmm. And there can be this like middle ground where I'm eating the salad because I really love those little great tomatoes that are so fresh and juicy. And I love a perfectly ripe avocado and I'm really enjoying the fresh spring greens. And I'm, you know, I can be in the moment enjoying the salad and knowing that I feel best when I eat vegetables. Um, and in that, in that sense, it's intrinsic, right? I'm doing because I want to do it. All mm-hmm. three of them are the same action. We're all eating the salad, right? All versions of me are eating the salad, but only one of them is really doing it through an intrinsic motivation through that agency. Um, And I think that when, for myself, I have found when I follow intrinsic motivation, there's nothing to rebel against. There's nothing to, um, there's no wagon to fall off of in essence, right? Because Mm -hmm. like, if I'm only doing something because I feel bad, if I don't, eventually I'm going to crack. Like I don't have, I'm not the kind of person who can do that for years and years. There's just a day where I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. It sucks. (laughs) Um, and likewise, if I'm doing it for a reward that is so far away and so distant Mm -hmm. that I'm like suffering in the short term, which is such a thing we set up in our culture, right? Suffer in the short term so that you can have this distant reward that may Mm -hmm. or may not ever materialize for you. Um, (laughs) again, I will probably crack because I just, I have found that doesn't really Mm -hmm. work for me, but if, if everything that you're doing is motivated by this intrinsic desire to do it, there's there's nothing to, there's no chain to shake. There's no like cage to rattle, nothing to rebel against. And it certainly fits for a bunch of different personalities in that way. I mean, there's a lot of hacks and we've talked about hacks before on the podcast where it's like, how do I just do this so that it's easier? How can it be more accessible? And that is really talking about extrinsic motivations is that if I have this um, carrot or stick that's going to help me make these quote unquote better choices, it it remains extrinsic and it will always be a little bit outside of self. And I always think about these things and it's not really been until I've had more conversations like this one. And in fact, this one specifically is lighting up some bells for me where I I think I'm a rebellious attitude kind of person. And my, (laughs) the, the thing I'll tell people when they're trying to convince me to do something is you can't make me and I can't either. You know, I'm not going to respond to the carrot or the stick because I just have that little, mm, I'm going to get everybody. But listening to this felt sense of an internal, this is what I want now because this is what my body is telling me I need. I, I, I want the lightness and the crunch and the delicious flavors of the salad or really want to feel comforted and satiated by a cupcake um, for maybe a croissant, but that's a whole nother story, is that now I'm not using a hack. I can't because either of those choice would contradict this external condition that the hack would create. 
it's an entirely different conversation that isn't even parallel to the, I have a hack for that. I have a system for that. I have a protocol for that. Protocols treat problems, not people. And we are not a problem. We're just complicated. (laughs) I think, yes, I love that you said we are not a problem because we are not a problem to solve. And the medical industry, and I include mental health care and physical health care. I don't believe there should be a line there. Mental health is physical health. Physical health is mental health. We need to stop drawing that line. Um, But both of those sort of seek, like we are all traumatized by a very dysfunctional culture. Mm -hmm. Our culture has some really big problems. We've talked about some of them in this talk. Um, And we we have trauma from that. And then we fall apart because we have anxiety from these from these conditioning, um, you know, these types of conditioning from these structures, from these ways of being that we're taught that don't necessarily work with us, you know, they don't work with us, they don't work for us. Um, And then we go to a doctor and we say, I have pain. And we go to a therapist and say, you know, we have anxiety, we have depression. And the medical industry seeks to fix the person so that we can then be reintroduced into society, which Mm -hmm. is what initially broke us. And that's, that's the problem, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like that's, we, we need people who are intrinsically motivated, who are led from within so that we can mm-hmm. self-navigate because that, that's ultimately what's going to change these broken systems that are creating mm-hmm. the pain and the stress and the anxiety and the depression is we all kind of have to be in our own agency. The more of us who are in agency, the less of that we will tolerate. And so it'll just fall apart. Yeah. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of those changes in, in a lot of different spectrums. I mean, I know we focus here on, and you know, rightly so on my health and wellness podcast on the health and wellness sphere, but we, we see that in uh, systemic racism. We see that in how our children are being schooled. We see all of these structures that for whatever point in time ser- were created to serve the values of that point in time. And over decades and years of application, the dysfunction continues to bubble to the top as we become less and less healthy, more and more anxious. Children are being put on psychiatric drugs at younger and younger ages now um, to treat things where if we look at the society we're asking them to participate in, um, the reactions are actually pretty sensical, you know, being a hyper... um, hypersensitized with so much coming at us every day or needing to move freely because that's the developmental age that four, five, and six-year-olds are at the very time we are asking them to sit still in a desk and not fidget and ask permission to pee. Um, Even as adults, we still need to move. But by the time we're in our 20s and 30s, we have become so conditioned into thinking, ah, no, I sit in my desk. I sit in my cubicle just the way I sat at my desk when I was in grade school. This movement thing, it's just a nice to have. When we are meant to move and we are meant to integrate and know where our bodies are, all of this anxiety, depression, pain, chronic fatigue, chronic aches, it is a condition of how we live our lives within the system that we have been, you know, um, just given over to. I agree 100%. I'm so glad it's like, you- <laughs> it's like we have these bodies that we're like, I'm going to take it out for a walk, like, you know, walking a pet, like walking a dog. Yes. Instead of 
instead of it being like part of us. And really that is the model that is set up. Like we talk about the mind body connection, but it's still as though they're connected via a telephone line, not like they're actually part Mm -hmm. and parcel of the same thing. They're integrated. You cannot separate mind from body. They are one and the same. And so, and I still, you mentioned, you know, sitting at your desk and like, this is what I do. I, as someone who is an embodiment coach, notice that I still struggle with feeling like I am working. I feel Mm -hmm. good about working when I'm at my computer. And that's not even necessarily what my work is about, but that was set up for me at such a young age. And it comes up for me sometimes where I'm like, you know, I really want to feel productive right now. Sitting in front of the computer doesn't have to be the way that I do it. And, and I, I never really think that other people are going with that, but I remember having a conversation, you know, with myself in my own head that as I spent, it was like an eight hour day treating patients and I saw a dozen people and I was on my feet the whole time. And I had my office manager at the desk, checking people out, doing the computer work. And I sat down for a few minutes in front of her just to kind of relax for a moment. I'm like, I should be working. I haven't worked all day because I wasn't sitting at the computer. I wasn't standing still. What I was doing was just way too much fun and had way too much movement to be work. And maybe it wasn't work, but it didn't mean it didn't have value and it didn't take energy and compassion and all these things. But we do have this sense of what it should be, what it should look like. And if I am contrary to that, I am counterculture. I am rebellious. I am against the grain, which are all things I've been called, so... There we are. <laughs> Those aren't bad things. Not bad things at all. Not, yeah. not, yeah, not in a world that that profits from your discomfort and um, your lack of self esteem. Yes, and that's the discomfort part is really interesting. That we, I, I noticed that in what you were saying too. That like, oh, you did this step that was joyful and it had so much ease and flow, and then you were like, oh, it didn't feel hard. I don't <laughs> feel like beat up by it. Therefore it wasn't actually work. It's like, like, I often feel like I have to apologize when I have fun days at work. Like that's not, it's not supposed to be like that, but it is, it it can be. Wasn't miserable enough to be called work. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and isn't that another adage that we have, we're going off on a rabbit hole here. Um, Isn't that another adage we have from childhood though, is, you know, do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. You know, work does have this attachment to a drudgery And we have normalized that drudgery for almost all of the population. So we have, as to come back to the embodiment of of, um, the mind-body connection, there is also a normalization of a certain amount of discomfort. You know, headaches are normal. Backaches are normal. Um, My knee is going out because I'm just getting old in my 30s. Um, Now, anxiety is normal. Depression is normal. And to then shift that conversation to say, common, not normal, your body being pain-free, depression-free, anxiety-free, that's normal as much as anyone can be normal because, but can we talk about normal versus common here in this mind-body connection and what we accept? hundred percent. I'm, I do the same thing. It's common. That doesn't make it normal. I had a Rolf who was the creator of uh, Rolfing, which was the type of body work I initially studied. She had a saying that was, uh, what's average is not necessarily normal. And I really like that because it's, it's so true just because everyone 
you know, reports a certain thing doesn't make that the norm. It just means that, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps there's a structure, a system, a cultural conditioning aspect that is promoting this result. That doesn't mean that it's what we should expect. And it drives me bananas when I hear people say, I'm getting old and my body is falling apart. And I have heard people say it at 18, 28, 38, all the way on up. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very fortunate. I'm 40 <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't feel like I'm falling apart. I actually feel more fit and comfortable in my body every year. And I think that that should be what we are expecting and what we are mm-hmm. aiming toward. And back to some of the problems with the medical establishment, you know, that is an expectation that is set up for a lot of people. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, once you get to this age, you know, you're on the down, you know, the downhill slide, it gets worse from here. And so people just expect that they're going to have these pains mm-hmm. and that they're, you know, that they're going to have to live with them and that the best years of their life are behind them. And that's another cultural story we have, you mm-hmm. know, like we really celebrate youthful people doing extreme things. If we look at the Olympics, for example, we have you know children essentially competing. We have like 13, 14 year old kids doing gymnastics and these extreme sports and it can, it can't be sustained. And so mm-hmm. we're like, well, once you're past 20, you just really can't be active. You got to sit at your desk and have this miserable drudgery of life <laughs> and just expect that you're going to fall apart and self-medicate with, you know, martinis and Netflix every night. It's true. Well, and I think you bring up a really interesting point here about the expectation of a downhill slide is that that creates an urgency of savoring and doing the extreme in your teens and twenties, because you won't be able to, because you'll be too decrepit to, as you cross, I mean, the line just keeps getting closer and closer. I mean, 38, 28, as you cross this invisible line of escaping youth versus what I agree should be more of the cultural norm to say, um, you know, this is your vessel for as long as you're here. So don't run it into the ground in your 20s. You know, be active, keep moving, and do so in a way that you will still be active and moving in your 80s and 90s, because we certainly can and we certainly could. But if we beat ourselves to holy heck, you know, doing extreme sports in our teens and 20s and leave nothing else in the tank and then accept that there's nothing else in the tank and that is all we have, this is a cultural setup. This is a given that we can buy into and say, ah, at least I did it when I could, instead of understanding there's a lot of recovery and movement we can yet achieve. Yes. And I think it happens to us physically when we're young, right? It's like mm-hmm. we mine our body when we're young, and then we mine our brain and our intellect and our mm-hmm. knowledge work when, you know, in our, during our working years, this is the expectation anyway. And, yeah. then, and, and it's burnout culture is what it is. We burn our bodies out and then we burn out our brains and then then we retire and die. Then there's nothing left. Like there's no energy, <laughs> energy left. And having, um, having gone through athletic training a couple of different times in a couple of different scenarios, one of the things that I note is that we do not bring athletes along in this country. I don't know about other countries, but in the U S there is a culture of extremity in our sports. Like, first of all, we think that if it's not the most extreme, why bother? Like going for a walk doesn't matter. Don't even bother. Like, oh yeah, that's you know. not exercise. I mean, the number of times I even have patients, we'll, we'll continue on with the sports for sure. But I have patients saying, oh, I don't exercise. I just go for a one hour walk every day. 
that's movement, that exercise, that so totally counts. Yeah. But yeah. it's not extreme. It doesn't drive right. you crazy. So it doesn't You're not completely worn out, exhausted, and on the floor at the end of it. So it wasn't, it, you were lazy, right? So, it, oh, I was just so lazy. I just went yeah. for a walk. Exactly. Okay, go um, on. <laughs> and, and so we, we don't, so exercise has to be at an extreme and we put our athletes through that too, right? So uh, I did that, that rowing, so crew team when I was in college and that's very much how it was. They just, you know, beat us up every day and push us really, really hard. There was no acknowledgement of this is your fitness level and what you're capable of. And let's develop your strength and your aerobic capacity in a way that is um, appropriate for your fitness level, that your body can tolerate in a way that does not create injury, that does not create stress. Uh, So I, I had this experience of being profoundly beat up and it resulted in injury. I didn't stick with it very long because it was so extreme and I did have so many issues. So I, I didn't do it for year after year after year. Um, later in my twenties, I did some competitive weightlifting. I did kettlebell sport and had a very different experience where my coach did exactly that. He brought me along in such a way that I grew in strength and capacity to the point where I was doing things I would never have thought I could do Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was not without effort and it was not without uncomfortable moments and times when I would push myself and I was healthier as a result of the training. I was not more broken because that's another expectation we have around sports is that, oh, if you're doing extreme sports, you're just going to tear your body down and, and break down and have all mm-hmm. these injuries and problems. So it's our, our fitness culture, our, our fitness culture, our medical culture could all do with the slight overhaul. <laughs> and, and to come back to your point about, you know, changing, uh, listening to that intrinsic, um, uh, desire and that we, we talked a lot about that around eating, but also around movement as well. And, and being brought along. I love this conversation around athleticism. It, it is meeting at this place where we're not saying everything is always going to be comfortable and easy. And we learn things through adversity and challenge. That is, to me, a little bit of why we're here. But to do so at the right pace, you know, so that you can challenge and grow without challenge and breaking and healing and then trying to grow and then breaking and challenge. Like that's not the cycle that's going to get us anywhere. And so we see this starting to change with a little bit of what is acceptable. What are we going to tolerate? And I'm speaking um, to an extreme condition, but it kind of usually starts with extremes around concussion protocols. You know, having uh, hockey and uh, football and soccer, women's soccer actually has the highest rate of concussion because of heading the ball, Um, minor concussions, but they do tend to add up over time that we accept this in an extreme, especially around football, National Football League here, is that this is what we do. We throw big guys onto the gridiron. We're going to run into each other. It's an extreme sport. You're here. You have um, a short career, but we pay you handsomely for it. And slowly over time, through changes in other sports like hockey and snowboarding and updating concussion protocols, we are starting to say we can still have sport. We can still have athleticism without brain injury, without brain injury that leads to brain damage and suicide or murder-suicides are just awful outcomes 
because we don't need to mine that physical so hard in, in the youth of our athletes that then does rob that mental that's not accessible later on in life. There is no separation here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that we are at a time where we are looking at some of our extremity in new mm-hmm. light. And uh, I think you're right that it does start with those bigger, more the, the scenarios that are more in the limelight. That's really interesting about soccer, by the way. I had not known that about the heading the ball. And I feel really vindicated because I always hated that when I was in like, I think middle school and they teach you to hit the ball. And I was like, oh, it hurts. I don't want to do that. So uh, that intrinsic desire to not hurt yourself, put that away. You need to head the ball. Right. Right. Don't protect yourself. Do it. Do yeah. the hard thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of that too, right? Like I can, and, and I like what you say too, like we can do hard things. We can push ourselves and we can do so from a resourced place, right? So we mm-hmm. can, from the center of our comfort zone, stretch out a little bit more and push ourselves and then come back. But what happens in our culture is that we get pushed to our edges and outside of them. And then we're told that we should live there, that we should sort of live either right on or just outside of our edge. And we hear it in sayings like everything you want is just outside your comfort zone. Um, Things like that, that that Mm -hmm. teach us to always be on the edge. I'm totally someone who bought into that and then was wait a minute, this is, this is not working because it does put you in that stress state all the time where there's never any nourishment and you wouldn't necessarily try to drive your car up a mountain with no fuel in the tank. You would fuel it up first. You would, it would be ridiculous to be like, why is this car not going up the mountain with no fuel in the tank? You, you know, you would not stand there and yell at your car for how lazy it was. You would fuel it up, but we don't do the same for ourselves. We're like, here I am completely out of fuel. Why am I failing at everything? I just don't understand it. I must be lazy and worthless and a horrible person. Or you haven't slept or nourished yourself or rested or taken a break. So it's one of the two. It's one of the two. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, and we can get so much further as well. And that's another piece that I start to see coming a little bit more into vogue, a little bit more in style as we talk about burnout culture um, and and the whole self-care movements that really started to become a bit more popular, but affluent and and this extra treats kind of way of self-care, not the real non-negotiable lifestyle changes that have to be part of self-care. But as we look at burnout culture, we are starting to learn that if we try and give from, uh, pour from an empty cup is a good phrase that we hear a whole lot, that we're not going to get very far and that we can spend five hours doing a task while broken and exhausted or go take a half hour nap and then spend a half hour doing that same task from a resource and rested um, position. And we actually get four hours of our life back but it has become such a place of cognitive dissonance to think resting will let me do more. It is so far from our cultural norm that we call going for a walk lazy or feel the need to just push on through and live at that very edge. Yes, and going back to what we were talking about with work and how we both have this feeling of uh, productivity being related to being at a computer, at a desk, that that is what we classify as work. I think that when we do get those four hours back, we're so set up to want to be extra productive, right? How much can I get done mm-hmm. in a day? That 
if we only took half an hour to do the task because we were rested and nourished and emotionally filled up and all of the things that we need to be to be healthy, happy humans, Mm -hmm. and then you do something that takes half an hour or 40 minutes, I struggle, and I'm sure other people struggle with this feeling of like, well, then if I have those four hours back, because I thought it was going to take me all day, Mm -hmm. five hours or whatever, I should do something else that's, quote, productive, (laughs) right? And so we're set up to feel like no matter if we do one task or 12 tasks in that five hours, we need to spend those five hours in drudgery. Productive. And if we're not in drudgery, (laughs) we're not productive. And it's not fun. It's not a good cycle. No matter how rested and happy and fueled up you are, like to be in drudgery all day is not fun. It doesn't, it does not fuel you. It drains you. (laughs) So I think acknowledging, you know, that pattern and and noticing where that comes up for each person, you know, each person can do that for themselves because it's going to be different for each person. Mm-hmm. Noticing these patterns of like, oh, actually I can take a nap, do this task and go for a walk or go sit on the beach and watch the waves and the eagles or whatever. And that's a good day. That's a day well spent. Mm-hmm. But we feel uncomfortable when we're relaxed. And this brings us full circle back to the beginning of our conversation, which is what are those intrinsic desires? But more importantly, what is that felt sense of need and a feeling in our body? What is this relaxed feeling of comfort that is now so different from this stressful, anxious, high, hardwired agitation that has become our norm? You know, we have to get used to that and acknowledge it within our body as much as any other felt sensation that may not be familiar. So when we come back to this idea of um, there is no separation in the mind-body connection and our health and our wellness is dependent upon all the things that we do, you know, not just um, how we eat and sleep and and move, but how we see and experience ourselves in the world. I want to just bring this conversation to a close by coming back to the work that you invite in your practice in your room, the orienting yourself to your environment, orienting yourself to yourself, orienting yourself to that felt sense in, in, you know, really what your body is telling you, and then how to utilize that as you go out into your world to continue to heal from, you know, these chronic mysterious things that perhaps never felt like they went away, but we did talk about magic at the beginning. Yeah. Well, I think again, it comes down to um, a way of being in the world rather than things that you're doing. So when a person is learning a new skill, there is some effort that has to be put in. So when I'm working with people and when I'm working with the healers who are in my uh, nerve apprenticeship, which is the the program that I have where I teach people these practices, Mm -hmm. uh, I do share practices. And I tell them also that these practices are frameworks to get the experience. They are like training wheels in essence for people to be able to experience the chemical reaction of Mm -hmm a sensory experience in their own body and realize what that is like for them. 
so that when we go out in the world, we have access to these states in our nervous system. Now, in the beginning stages, it has to be intentional is what I have found because we don't, we don't self-regulate most of the time. Most people have some dysregulation in our nervous system, which is related to trauma, which we didn't really uh, talk in depth about the definition of trauma. But the way that I view it, it's what's happening in your nervous system, not some event that's outside of you. So most people have some level of that going on, whether they experience some adversity that they can point to specifically, or whether it's more diffuse and just kind of a result of living in a culture with a lot of toxic elements that we've talked about. Um, So those practices will allow us to initially train our nervous system to enter into different states. So if we're stuck in, for example, uh, sympathetic, which is your fight or flight state, and you begin to look around the room and allow your eyes to land and allow your senses to start to actually take in your current environment, that starts to create a sense of presence and safety for your biology because your your nervous system gets sensory input that says, oh, actually I'm in a safe spot right now. I'm in a room. There's no danger. I see no rustling in the bushes. Like there's beautiful colors Mm -hmm. and beautiful art, whatever the, the scenario is, maybe you're outside. So then your nervous system goes, it gets this little drop of shifting out of that sympathetic activation. And now you've got just a little more access to it, just a little more ability to enter into that state. So over time, these practices will accumulate in your nervous system so that we have that resilience and that elasticity that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So in the initial stages, you may a person may find themselves in an environment where they're feeling very triggered, feeling very activated, their anxiety is going up, or on the flip side, they may feel very shut down, very frozen, feel dissociated from themselves, kind of lost, like they're kind of leaving their body. And they may intentionally use and implement a practice such as looking around their environment or any of the other somatic practices that I teach or, you know, tapping into what their internal experience is and be really intentional about it. Over time, the goal is to have a nervous system that self-regulates, right? So that if the activation comes up a little bit, the nervous system can return to Mm -hmm. a regulated state without us necessarily having to go out and grab a strategy or implement a practice because that's very labor intensive Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's not necessarily always realistic. Mm -hmm. Now there will be always times where we get pushed a little bit beyond what our nervous system can handle. It's just, there can be a lot going on in life. Life tends to do that sometimes. And in those cases, it can be useful to go out and intentionally take 20 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever, to spend some time bringing yourself back into your body and, and giving yourself what you need. But I think, again, this is a place where, um, you know, culturally we've, had this expectation set up that that we should do a thing. We should go to yoga three times a week, or we should uh, meditate for 40 minutes in the morning or whatever the thing is that we should do to quote, maintain regulation or resolve anxiety or whatever. And those things may be things that a person chooses because that person has the intrinsic desire to do them. And ideally we have a nervous system that will self-regulate on top of that, where it's we don't essentially need those practices to mm-hmm. uh, spark the regulation to bring that person back to that centered place. The, the nervous system self-centers. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Um, just looking towards the goal that again, this is another thing that is counter to um, the the medical complex as we know it, which is to say, if you are breaking down, you will always break down and you'll just be on the continued breakdown path. But there is an ability um, through neuroplasticity, through through learning and self-regulating that we don't always have to be on that same trajectory. We will not always be that same person as we resource, learn, and re-educate. Um, we can have that self-regulation and that mind-body connection that promotes health and promotes well-being. Yes. I think it's really important to understand that your body, your biology is a process. Mm-hmm. It is not an object. And this is a belief that a lot of us have that we don't know we have, Mm -hmm. but the medical establishment really looks at, you know, a human being as an object. And like you said, it's like, oh, you broke this thing. Well, you know, it's like, it's like you got in a car crash and your car will never be the same, but Mm -hmm. it really isn't so much like that. Um, To me, the way I view it is it's like you have a boat and if you've ever been on a boat and been steering, you kind of point your bow at something ahead. And I'm thinking when you're close to land, I have never done really open water sailing. So don't ask me about navigating there. <laughs> but, but when you're close to land, you point your boat, your, the bow of your boat towards like, you know, some landmark on the, that you see far away, maybe it's a red house or something like that. And then the water's moving. So as you're going towards it, your bow may shift a little bit and then you make a little corrective stroke to kind of bring yourself back on course. Mm-hmm. And Maybe, you know, some boat goes by in the wake, kind of washes you this way, and then you you make another corrective stroke, or, you know, you steer a little bit to get your bow back to center. And this is how we're traveling. It's it's more of a, of a journey than it is this object that we just sort of damage along the path. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And there's a flow to it. There There is a give and take that comes with it. Um, and definitely that shows up in your imagery. That's wonderful. Well, Suki, thank you so much for your time and for chatting with us today. I I love um, this conversation just took a really fun turn of looking at the big structures in which we exist and the way we think about our mind and our body and our health and engage with the world. And I, I feel like it's been um, a really great resource for, for just imagining a reality that could be different for ourselves, different for our immediate community, and then hopefully in time, different for our, different for our community at large. So thank you so much for your wisdom and insight. Thank you um, so much for having me here. It's been <laughs> really enjoyable. Wonderful. Well, and if our um, if our listeners want to hear more from you, learn more, do more deep dives in some of these uh, little rabbit holes that we decided not to chase, um, where can they find you? Where can they learn more? So they can find me at wholebodyrevolution.com. That is my primary website. I also have quite a few YouTube videos. So I am at youtube.com forward slash Suki Baxter. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Suki. This is such an enjoyable conversation. Uh, Thank you all for tuning in and listening for another episode of the Healing Ground Movement. Uh, We'll see you next week for another fresh episode with fresh ideas. Be well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.